This is Omo. 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 Is this Yoko Omo? This is Omo. This is Omo. Hey everybody, welcome back to Omo. Welcome back. I hope you guys had a fantastic break and are ready to move forward. I'm ready to move forward. Yeah. I'm Jerry Lynn. I'm here with Rosie Deloach from, from uh, what part of Dallas aren't you from? <laughs> from R- I am from Richardson, which Richardson. is North Dallas. North Dallas. And I'm here joined by Christopher Jacoby from Berwyn Heights, Maryland. Did I get that right? You know what? I'm fucking sick of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> the truth comes out. Oh, airing all of Omo's dirty laundry. Can I have like six months off of hearing your despicable grating Muppet voices? I knew it was going to come to this. Yeah. Always making fun of our Muppet voices. He's off his meds. What? <laughs> I was going to come up with something funny that is my meds, but I, I got nothing. Yeah, sure. It takes six months, take a year. Oh, but I, I love you guys. We love you too, but whatever you got to do to be you. <gasps> so everybody, Chris is going to have a little hiatus because, uh, buddy, even from day one, you Rehab. have had... <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> Plenty on your plate uh-huh. <laughs> with your 12 children and your rehab and, you know, helping run a shop. Stop and- saying rehab. <laughs> <laughs> Cocaine's a hell of a drug. It's okay. I wish I could afford cocaine. Wait, did I say that out loud? <laughs> it's it's Zyrtec D. <laughs> <laughs> no, in all seriousness, uh, we, we all have a lot on our plates and it's really mm-hmm. tough to keep those plates spinning. And we should normalize taking a break from things. And as much as I love you guys and I love everybody that listens, uh, I talked to my good friends here and I'm going to take a few episodes off and uh, focus on some instruments and focus on some structural stuff. Um, I'm going to get an eight pack. Um, Yeah. uh, That those lines that go from your eight pack down to your wang dang doodle. I know a word that I won't say on Omo about them. What are they actually called? Uh, the V, the, yeah, like, like it's the V shape. The like, the like, aubergine anterior. I'm gonna get that. That's why I okay. don't do. I'm sorry. That's why you're taking a break from Omo for yeah. the abs. You guys ever see? Man, Jesus had those in spades. Man, mm-hmm. you guys see him mm-hmm. up on the cross. Man, mm-hmm. you could you could like slice salami on this. You're gonna, you're gonna going look there. like uh, Anthony from Queer Eye. You're what? Gonna, you're gonna get all cut like him. Oh, I, he just, he cooks food. I, I find oh, it suspect. Have you seen him this season? No. Yeah, okay, you got to catch up. Okay, is it? does he look with, like... With your time off of Omo. Does he look like Jesus? <laughs> From the... Danger, <laughs> danger, danger. You're on your own. Okay, okay, okay. So we're getting off track. You need, you need some time and some space. And, oh my God, we have been through such insanity the last two years. Is this and, year four? Is this year uh, four of Omo? Uh, this is season four. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Whoa. And uh, so I I respect that you you need this, but I got I to gotta say something. Yeah. You're mad at me? 
there would be no Omo if like you had not approached me and talked about your passion for storytelling. Oh. And you were the person who came up with it. And uh, I am in- extremely indebted to you and mm-hmm. uh, the way that you've connected me to this community. So do what you got to do and come be a part of this when you can. Oh, thanks, Rosie. Thanks for making it a real thing. And Jerry, thanks for having a voice like hot, salted sex. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we all need to have something, and I guess uh, that's what I got. So, <laughs> love you too, Chris. I love you guys. Love you guys. But we what are we? Do, what are we gonna do? We've, we've we do got... have an actual guest coming up. Uh huh. Um, and don't spoil the surprise. There's a surprise at the end of the episode. Don't spoil it, Chris. Uh, we have Brandon Godman coming on, and this guy is fantastic and knows how to tell just beautiful lines of storytelling to just paint the room. Were you going to say a lie? A beautiful lie. He's a liar. <laughs> no. uh, no. He's a beautiful liar. <laughs> He's a Southern gentleman. He's a Southern gentleman. And uh, for those of you who are more into the romance of this podcast rather than the reality, he harkens back to Luigi Teresio who is the one of the earlier Italians to start collecting violins. He was one of the few first ones who recognized that Stradivari violins were worth preserving. And he wandered around Lombardy, visiting cathedrals and trading carpentry work for one of their old violins in disrespair. And over time, he built a collection of over 100 violins, 24 of them Stradivaries. Only our guest does even more than that. He's got a lot of things going on. A lot of tricks up his sleeve. He finds like a hundred violins after a weekend in South Carolina. (laughs) Yes. Did you guys see the picture when he had his pickup truck just with layers of violins in between bubble wrap, like a dirty, dirty tiramisu with no cases, just just naked violins. (laughs) Falls out. Cross country fiddle slanging. <laughs> so you guys stay tuned for our guest, Chris. We love you. We're gonna see you later at some point this year. Yeah, don't die on us. No, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Let's get to the warm weather. Thanks for okay. for doing this with me, you guys. I love hey, you guys. No problem. Yeah, thank you. This episode is sponsored in part by Encore Orchestral Strings, the violin shop within Pages Music, located in Indianapolis, Indiana, where Jean Riani, the manager of Encore, is a lifelong admirer of and advocate for new making. John provides a trustworthy place to send one's instruments. This year, you will find John Riani celebrating Pages Music's 150th anniversary. Indiana owned and operated since 1871. If and you visit Pages Music, you might spy John in a corner demonstrating his fine cello skills, but he will put that cello down. Come over to you. Whether you be an instrument maker, bow maker, restorer, or shop owner, and he will say to you wistfully, I want to encourage you that the work you do is deeply important and appreciated. The world desperately needs great art, and you are creating it, preserving it, 
and facilitating it. And he will give you one of the best hugs west of the Allegheny. Welcome back, everyone. We've got with us Brandon Godman. Brandon runs the Fiddle Mercantile in swanky San Francisco, is a professional fiddler. And in Jerry's words, someone you must have play for you. He's also a member of the board of directors at the VSA. Welcome, Brandon. Hi. Hey, Brandon. Thank you for having me. (laughs) We're so happy to have you. I'm excited to be here from all the way across the country. Yes, you mentioned you're in a specific neighborhood of San Fran. Yes, I uh, my shop is located down in the Mission, which oh. is the very rich in culture. Do you see Adam Savage riding around on his skateboard down there? You know, I'm not really a good pop culture guy, but I'm sure I've seen him. Or at least someone who okay. thought they were him. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. But hey, I keep my eyes peeled, so. Good. <laughs> so I got to know you because Jerry said you need to buy your restoration instruments for your shop from this guy. And I had a wonderful experience with you and bought a handful of things for me and my team to work on, especially right now it's January. It's real slow and we've got these really fun projects on our desk. So thank you. Yeah. I was very (laughs) thankful for the business. Thank you, Jerry. I'm sure I still owe you a commission or a (laughs) bottle of scotch or something. Maybe a sandwich. (laughs) At this point, a sandwich would be lovely. I'm hungry. Okay, yes, we can do that. Um, Rosie, I actually met you first, though, um, in Dallas, and I was on the road with Cotabo at the time. Um, You're right. I do remember that now. And I popped into your shop because uh, Jay Rury, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, He he said, you need to go visit Rosie because she is a – I guess, student of uh, his, and she he highly recommended you. I came in, and we talked, and you said, I'd love to do business sometime. Not in a place, but I loved yeah. meeting you then. So, Oh, good, good. So you've, you've really worn a lot of hats in this business. Yes. Yeah. I try to. <laughs> I mean, you've got player, got bench monkey. We've got dealer for a, a, a large manufacturer. We've got dealer to the public. We've got all these different things that you have this wide breadth of knowledge from having done. That's really awesome, man. You know, I'm really fortunate to have had a lot of experiences and opportunities. Um, I I just can't help myself from getting interested in new things and going after it. You know, that's when I left my shop in Nashville. One of the things that my two ex-business partners said is, you're never going to have a shortage of ideas. Oh God, that's true. <laughs> or a shortage of interest. So, you know, just keep following them and do that, you know? Um, and I did. And the discipline is to be sure that I give everything adequate amount of time and say no to some things, but it's, I think every step that I've taken has been vital to get me to where I am. That's the hardest lesson to learn is saying no to things. Yes. Yeah. Do you have any secrets for that? Learn how to say it first, because I have a hard time just getting it to come out of my mouth, you know? I'm right there with you. Yeah. I have learned how to say, does this align with my core needs and core values? And sometimes it works out, occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, being aware of one's core, that's the big thing, right? Like, what makes you happy? 
what makes you want to get up every day and do what you're doing. I mean, in this trade, it's not like going into tech, which in San Francisco, I'm surrounded by people who are making more than I'll ever consider making, you know? Um, but I like to think that they're not, at least a large majority probably don't have the um, gift of being able to do what they're passionate about every day. I mean, I get to look at old fiddles and talk to cool people and hear amazing yeah. music and um, go on these adventures that are just, yeah, I wouldn't trade it for a thing. Good. Well, speaking of your core, so you told me a story of 10-year-old Brandon and going back, even then you were on this trajectory. Tell me about that person. Okay. So 10 year old Brandon, I'll have to show you all my cassette tape from when I was like 13. <laughs> okay. It's the same mixtape on it. Like number two. <laughs> no, it's professionally printed. It's called a step in time. It was my first solo album. Wow. That I did. I recorded when I was 12 <laughs> then turned 13 and it was released. Oh, but that's awesome. I feel like such a scrub now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I grew up on a, uh, on a tobacco farm in Kentucky. It was a farm that's been in our family since 1857. So I have a huge reverence for history. And, you know, my grandpa is one of those people that just tells stories about everyone. So I've always loved that. I'm just, I, I don't know. My mom always said that I was born an 80 year old man. <laughs> so it, it kind of makes sense. Mine said 50 for me. <laughs> I guess I had gray hair when I came out. So I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I was like when I was nine or so, I had this, I would always found music interesting. And I grew up going to square dances with my grandparents on the weekends. And I always loved, this is if I really dissect why I got into playing, it's because I love, I love trains, steam engines in particular. And there's a fiddle tune called Orange Blossom Special. Oh, where yeah. you make Train noises. And when I heard that, I was like, that's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and I immediately like was attracted. I was like, cool. Fiddle's the thing I want to learn. Cause I'd been thinking like banjo, trumpet, whatever, um, went to fiddle and my parents, you know, they were like, well, it'll probably just be a phase. So <laughs> why don't we just wait on that one? And you know, maybe you'll get a fiddle someday. So I used to take coat hangers, wire coat hangers and shape them like a fiddle. And I would sit and try to play along with recordings. And I thought to myself, like, okay, it's a higher note, so I'm probably going to raise my right arm, which is my bow, to make it sound higher. <laughs> like, I was going through these thoughts, you know, this is how this thing works. And my mom got tired of having to get new uh, coat hangers. So she's like, <laughs> we're going to get you a fiddle. But caveat, you have to buy it. So I bought my oh. first fiddle when I was 10. It was a three-quarter size fiddle that actually didn't even have a sound post stood up in it. It was rattling around. Mm -hmm. Um Got home, learned, you know, I plucked the E string and I was like, cool, there's the bell for Orange Blossom Special. Almost <laughs> a master at this thing, you know. Um, but I sat and tried to like learn from recordings. And then about six months into it, they got me hooked up with a, a lady who lived in the neighboring county named Blanche, who was a 78 year old woman. And my mom used to go and drop me off at her house and she would teach me fiddle lessons for like two to three hours. And the thing that's fun about her is she was an instrument, I would venture to say hoarder. She was a collector, but she had so ah. many instruments around. Mm. And we would play fiddle and then we'd jam and, you know, her son would come over and play with us. And then I'd say, hey, what, can you show me that old guitar you were talking about? Or can you show me that fiddle? What are those fiddles under the bed in there? What are those fiddles hanging on the wall in there? You know, <laughs> and she would grab them and show them to me. And she always had a project going on her kitchen table like 
you know, putting pegs in or refitting a banjo bridge or something. She was a fascinating woman, but that's where I got lit up. I mean, I was equally interested in learning tunes as I was diving in and trying to figure out what is this fiddle you're playing, you know? So is this Blanche before she lived with Rose and, <laughs> and Ma? And Oh my God. Yeah. She is the Eastern Kentucky of the Golden Girls, probably. <laughs> I would love that. But That's awesome. Yeah. So you, you decided that you wanted to collect a hundred fiddles or hundred violins, like around that age, right? Yeah. Well, I met a couple other people. There was my, another mentor I had named Harold Zimmerman who lived in Fort Thomas, Kentucky. And he, um, he told us the first time I met him, he's like, I've got over a hundred fiddles. And I was like, that sounds like a pretty cool thing. I'm going to do that. You know? So here I was 10 years old and telling my mom and dad that I'm going to start buying fiddles. So we would go to like flea markets and uh, slowly, like I remember the first, you know, six, seven, eight fiddles that I got. Like I remember them in order. <laughs> <laughs> when did you say to yourself, like, I've got an eye for this? When did the hunt, and it really is a hunt. Like if you're, if you're not familiar with the process of, of acquiring violins for, for resale or just to own, it's, it's a hunt. Like you, you pursue them. You might not necessarily know what it is and you buy it and you study it and you live with it. When did you decide that that was something that you were good at and something you wanted to do. Well, that came much later. I mean, I guess I started acquiring information early because Blanche told me before I went to my first festival, she said, if you want to meet people and talk to fiddlers, ask them what kind of fiddle they're playing and they'll talk to you all day long. And mm. sure enough, that was, so here I was 10 years old and like, you know, we play it too. And I'd say, what kind of fiddle is that? And then they would show it to me and I'd play it. And so here I was immediately taking in information really um, by seeing this fiddle and that fiddle. And well, that one sounds really good. That one sounds terrible. Why is that? You know? Um, and I just kept doing that. I mean, I got to be known as kind of like the tech geek because I knew all of my like friends, like what kind of strings they played, what kind of fiddle they had, where it was from, how long they've had it, that type of thing. Um, when I moved to Nashville later on, I was 19, spent some time working there first with Williams Fine Violins and then um, was still kind of uh, doing both like professional road work and, you know, going to school some. But I eventually I've reached a crossroads in my playing where you know, I realized that I wanted to be my own boss at some point, or at least have a little bit more of a say in my, um, success, you know, like, uh, am I going to be able to eat this month? And sometimes <laughs> as a gigging musician, you're really yeah. at the mercy of getting called for gigs. Now you can, you know, you can work and work and work and get the ball rolling to where you do have gigs coming in and, um, teaching. But I, I was always equally interested in, you know, buying, selling, trading violins and bows. And Fred Carpenter at the violin shop, I was on the road with a band called the band Perry at the time. And he had asked me at that point, he said, Hey, you know, I need someone to work at the violin shop. Would you be interested in coming to work? And I said, well, I'm on the road like 20, 25 days a month right now. I don't think I could fit it in, but I'll keep it in mind. And things changed in about three months. And I called Fred and I said, Hey, you know, my schedule's kind of cleared. Uh, do you still need someone at the violin shop? And he said, yeah, come by on Tuesday and we'll, we'll see what we can come up with. So I started working there in 2011 full time. Um, 
And then I started, you know, uh, there were always gig opportunities coming up, but I eventually had to make a decision in 2013. Like, what am I going to make? Like, what is my core and what am I going to make my full-time job here? And I realized that a lot of people can play fiddle. A lot of people can sing parts, you know, try to play other instruments and be a utility musician, but not everybody knows how to spot a Roth or, you know, has a natural inclination to study instruments or even a desire to. Right. And for me, you know, I was spending hours just looking at photos since I was like 11 online, you know? So it's kind of this, uh, appetite that can't be filled. My wife calls that violin porn. (laughs) It totally (laughs) is. Yeah. Look at my browser history. It's all violin porn. (laughs) Mine too. Yeah. What are you looking at? Nothing. Yeah. Another violin. Yeah. Exactly. So that's how I got into it and decided to make the full plunge into making it my vocation, you know. So I can imagine as you're working at the shop, you still are building a collection of your own. You're absorbing things, violins. Yeah. Um, I would buy, you know, Fred was, he was kind to, if there were instruments that we really liked, you know, we could get them. Um, I was always watching Craigslist and eBay and that type of thing. And also still, you know, like when my mentor Harold passed away, I bought, uh, like 20 violins that were his. Um, so I was slowly building it up, but I didn't, you know, I was always a buyer. I really wasn't a seller until I had to start doing it on my own. You know, I, I sold for the shop, but of my own collection, I kept everything or traded it for something else that I wanted, you know? Yeah. When was that moment where you decided, oh, I I need to wholesale. I can't just keep on holding on to these. <laughs> well, that moment was, um, I went on the road with, I, I was at the violin shop at the time and by that point had been made partner. So I was like a share, I, I owned a share of the shop. And I really didn't feel equipped to do the trade like I wanted it to. Like I I needed to learn more. I wanted to be able to identify instruments better. I wanted to know more about the trade beyond the walls of that violin shop in Nashville, Tennessee, you know. Mm -hmm. And Reggie Williams was in the process of retiring and selling his shop at the time in Atlanta. And they were just about to have a auction in Philadelphia. Fred Oster was putting it on Freeman's Freeman's. Yep. They were going to have that 2015 and Tim Toft was coming over and I spoke with Reggie and Reggie said, Hey, let's drive up to Philadelphia, do the Freeman's auction and we'll stop and visit shops on the way up and on the way back. So we did a trip that was like Wednesday through Monday. And that was the trip that changed my life really because you know, I got to see so many instruments and bows, meet so many people. And I realized that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go in and just see stuff, you know, travel around. I mean, the biggest part of this business is laying your eyes on all the examples you can possibly lay your eyes on, getting anything you can in your hands, you know? Um, And that trip, I decided, okay, I want to do wholesale for a while just to learn. Like I need to pretty, pretty much dealing however many instruments I possibly can. And that's what I made the decision to change and, you know, leave the violin shop, move to the West coast. Reggie set me up with a bow company called Sosa bows, which Mm. is a Brazilian bow company. And I went on the road. 
<laughs> I, I was selling for them for a second. Yeah. For about okay. a year. Um, so I traveled around selling for them, but then also showing old instruments and bows. So I'd enter a shop and say, Hey, I have Sosa bows here. Are you interested? No, we're, you know, full up on Brazilian bows right now. Oh, I see that old violin hanging on the wall. Is that something, what is that? You know, is it something you'd be willing to sell? Do you have any inventory that's stale? Do you have any holes in your inventory? Maybe I have something here, you know? Um, in the first year I was on the road, I visited over 120 violin shops. I got to say, that's the best kind of salesman. Just someone who's curious and trying to find the right kind of fit and not trying to, to push. <laughs> I, I really respect that about you. Well, you know, I've, I, someone once told me that your job as a salesman starts when someone says no. And while I totally understand the, you know, salesman as a definition, yes, that's probably true, but that's not my style. I consider myself to be a matchmaker, really. You know, it's my job to already know what the person who I'm going to be visiting is going to be interested in. And the same way with when you're dealing in a violin shop. I mean, when someone walks in, if you have a relationship with that customer or that client, you know what they're going to like before they even walk into your showroom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, or you have a darn good idea. There's a lid for every pot and you're just trying to find the right lid. Yeah. And I mean, you want people to be, I want people to be very happy with what they get from me. And if they aren't, please come back. I'll take it back and trade. I want it back and trade, you know, mm-hmm. um, because I want to continue to do business. And, you know, even those sales that I've made that weren't right, that I had to learn from, I learned from them, you know, and I try not to make that mistake again. Now we're human. Um, but the people that I admire most, that's how they do business, you know, and that's, that's, uh, it's for the long term for me. You know, we don't have yeah. to do business with everybody, but I want to enjoy people and trust who I do business with. So that's, that's the bottom line right there is just making them feel confident in doing business with you. We keep circling back to core values and that's one of the tenets of the way I run my business and it's on my website, matchmaking. And yeah. I, I love that you mentioned that. <laughs> it is. I mean, we're all romantics here, right? Yeah. Jerry, I know you have to be a romantic. Oh, deep down, you know it. So I'm I'm thinking of, of, of a gentleman in the trade that many of our listeners might know who's an Orthodox rabbi. And uh, this gentleman, aside from uh, his main gig is making sure dairies are kosher, but he travels up and down the East Coast and he uh, he deals in violins. And one day he's talking about being a legit matchmaker. Like, mm-hmm. no, what mm-hmm. do you mean? Like, no, he goes, he, he, he matches young men and young women and their families together. And I thought, oh, wow, wow, you do this all the way around. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's interesting. I'm really glad to know that about him. That's yeah, so cool. I can tell you another story sometime off the air about a visit, which was very interesting. But Did he uh, match you with someone? <laughs> what's that? Did he match you with someone? Uh, no, no. Okay, so uh, myself <laughs> and a colleague, we went and visited his 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 home to to do some business, and the the colleague didn't find anything he wanted, and I decided that I'm just to keep things, for lack of a better word, kosher. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to buy a violin, so I bought this really nice Mirkor violin that uh, needed a bunch of work. And we're about ready to go. And he says, well, while you're here, 
you know, it's a shame you've come all this way. You should at least go to my amusement house. What? My amusement house. It's not too far from here. Huh. Hmm. So we get in our car and we follow him in his car and we go to his house, which was a former university housing, all 14,000 square feet of it. Oh my god! That was 14,000. I'm not, I'm not making that number up. And we go in and it looked like there was the remains of, of, um, of a Sabbath gathering in the, the part of the, the, the house that was, or the building that was finished. And we start going back into all these different rooms. And, uh, not only are there just scads of violin bodies everywhere, but there's all manner of antiques that you could possibly imagine. And wow. we eventually end up in a part of this house that has no heat and no electricity. We can see our breath coming out of our mouths. And we're looking at violins that are being handed to us over piles of stuff with the lights on our phones. Oh my mm-hmm. God. And I'm standing on something and I, I'm like, what the heck am I standing on? And I shine my light down and I'm standing on the arms and heads of, of baby dolls. <laughs> <laughs> and the colleague wow. and I look at each other to say, "We need to get out of here." Okay, okay. <laughs> only arms and only heads. I'm sure there was other parts, but I didn't want to take inventory. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we get wow. back in the car and we leave, and it's like we just learned a life lesson. Like there is a point at which you collect violins that it like enough's enough. Is it though? I mean, come <laughs> on, Jerry. Probably not. I, you and I, we're going to end up like that in like thirty years. Yeah, I, they're my friends. I can't <laughs> let go of them. <laughs> no, that's. I mean, you're you're saying that stuff, and what's funny is like the inner picker in me is just like, what's the address? Where is this? <laughs> <laughs> I can get it for you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. So you're in San Francisco. Yeah. I got to ask, are there fiddlers in San Francisco? Is there like an old time jam at the corner of Hayton Ashbury? Yeah. (laughs) Um, There used to be some jams up there. Yes. You know, there is a very vibrant uh, bluegrass and old time scene in San Francisco. And it's got a huge tradition for that. I mean, especially California as a whole because of the Dust Bowl and people moving out here from the East, the Midwest, um, you know, the Okies, as they say. Okay. I mean, huge amounts of country music all across uh, California. And uh, also, I mean, just right here in the Bay Area, I mean, as far as like traditional music goes, you've got David Grisman, who was here. Um, Some of the most, you know, iconic bluegrass albums were recorded in Berkeley, California. I mean, bluegrass album band, Tony Rice's, some of his music was recorded there. I mean, it just goes on and on. So when I moved out here, it was, yeah. It was very surprising. Well, I'll tell you this. I moved out and I didn't announce myself really as a player moving out because that wasn't my main intent. I figured, you know, playing would happen. I knew Lori Lewis lived out here and I wanted to meet her at some point, but I needed to hit the ground running as a sales rep for Sosa Bows and start making a living selling stuff on my own. Um, I happened to move into a place that was just around the corner from a bluegrass jam that happened every Monday night. Wow. Had no oh, idea. Nice. And I moved into town on a Saturday. On Monday, I was walking to grab a coffee and I saw a girl walking down the street with a fiddle on her back. And I said, hey, is that a violin? And she said, yeah. She said, it's actually more of a fiddle tonight because I'm going to a bluegrass jam <laughs> right here. 
And I was like, mm-hmm. this is weird. This is so weird. So I went and got my fiddle, met some people, met a player there who introduced me to a student and I sold an instrument to their student three days later. I mean, wow. you know, and I gave her a jar of moonshine as her commission. <laughs> nice. So West, being West Coast, I know you and I both share love of American violins. And, yeah, y- you know, you is there anything memorable that you've seen out there that because you know, they don't tend to travel as far as people think they do. Like a lot of the American violins I see are from Pennsylvania, Ohio, New York, maybe, you know, some of the, the swankier ones from, from new England, but you have to have seen things out there that I've not seen. Is there anything that sticks out in your mind as being like, Whoa, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I guess it depends on what we define cool. I mean, I've been introduced to a lot of makers who, were local, you know, like Ignaz Lutz. Oh yeah. Huge maker in San Francisco and beautiful work. Um, it, you know, he, there was a guy down in the South Bay. I mean, of course, Lenini, mm-hmm. um, who studied in Italy and then moved back, was going to set up a shop in San Francisco, but said, Oh, well, Lutz is here. So I'm going to go down to San Jose and make violins there. Um, there were a handful of makers also who were in that area, a guy by the name of Kaufman who Mm -hmm. on his label, he actually had a photo of himself and wrote a poem in dedication to the trees and his mother. Wow. Was Bolander also in your area too? Yep. Bolander was down in San Jose or that area. He was a bow maker. Um, You know, in Berkeley or Oakland, there was uh, JNN or JN Ashow, uh, Mittenwald trained makers who set up a shop there. Jay Ifshin actually has their safe that was in their shop for 80 years or whatever in his shop now, which is pretty cool. Um, And yeah, so there's a lot of instruments that kind of come out of the woodwork that are, yeah, I've never seen one of these before. This is beautiful. You know, Um, I found a violin, uh, got it from a fiddle buddy of mine who does a bunch of trading locally and, it was made in Fresno, and it actually was made with an external baseball. Oh man, that's wild! What? Yeah. Where? And he, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, exactly where the base bar would be on the inside, except for it's on the outside and the bridge. You kind of have to chop the leg off and um, set it on oh. top of this base bar. Wow! Oh my goodness! Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I America. I guess. <laughs> I mean, as long, as long as it stays glued, because the pressure is going a different way. Huh? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's, you know, there are a lot, I, I do have a weak spot for oddities like that. It's yeah. stupid. It's not a good investment, but it's really fun to open up a bottle of scotch. I'm, I'm and right talk there with about. you. I'm, I'm so there. I always yeah. like the weird stuff. Yeah. The weirder, the better. Yeah. <laughs> do you guys know Andy Carruthers? Not personally. I know of him. I, I bought a He's shirt in- off of him. Yes, he's got great branding. Um, so he's just up in Santa Rosa, and Andy, or Andy, over the course of um, the pandemic, has been experimenting with different. You know, he comes up with a thesis, and then he makes a violin based on that thesis. And it first started. Uh, he did a series of instruments that he doesn't use scrapers or anything on. He just finishes them with gouges. But he does these designs where he's basically adjusting where strength is in the top you know, and trying to figure out uh, basically how sound is produced um, based on where strength, lines of strength are in the top 
backsides. It's fascinating. And the thing I love about Andy, he's not just getting a harebrained idea and going after it. He actually formulates a experiment, you know? Is this the violin? It, it looks kind of like it has scales. Yep. Okay. He's made four of them now. When it's varnished, it really brings out that crazy texture. Those are fascinating. It's so cool. Yeah. And he made one that he basically combined the uh, Indian tabla with a violin. <laughs> it's it's incredible. Yeah, just check out his website. He's He wrote some really great info on all of them. So, uh, But yeah, I mean, he, he's a person who I like to talk about experiments with. I do wonder when you are uh, basically selling instruments all across the country, have you noticed any kind of rhyme or reason as to what violin works in this region or what violin works in this region? We're, we're hearkening back a little bit to Luigi Terizio, who was one of the first collectors of, of Italian violins. And he was one of the few who figured out there was not demand where he was, but in Northern Europe, these violins were all the rage. Um, Anything like that similar in your experience? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, you know, doing wholesale, a large part of what you're doing is just buying something here because it doesn't sell that well and taking it to where you know it sells well. Um, and it's, I think, you know, as I sit and try to analyze it, I think a lot of it goes back to the players that have prominence or have had prominence in those areas, the pedagogy. You know, I mean, who was teaching and saying, oh, you need to have a very, very strong bow or the bow needs to be over 62 grams or no, it needs to be a very supple bow and it needs to be very light on its feet. And, um, you know, you need to tighten it this much. So, you know, it's I mean, there are certain regions where I know things don't work. So mm-hmm. I always f- hope to find them there. And then there are certain regions where I'm you know, I know they favor certain things. So I try to have those when I go there and it's not a black and white rule because maybe my first year visiting these shops, certain shops would say, ah, can't sell a French violin to save my life. Don't show me any. And then six months later when I visit, they'll say, Hey, do you have any French violins? (laughs) 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 And it just changes because retail, as we all know, is, I mean, an absolute crapshoot, right? Yeah. So it, it, you're, you're always kind of chasing the trends, um, Mm -hmm. while trying to maintain some, maintain some sort of consistency, but, um, and you also meet the people who have soft spots for certain things. Um, I always tried to like, I'm a huge fan of German violins and bows, especially German bows. That's a passion of mine. Basically it started because I can't afford amazing French bows. Um, (laughs) and there's a lot to learn about them still. And people, people are finally discovering that German bows are great. You know, they're, yeah. there's a lot of, lot of value there for comparatively not as much money. Absolutely. I'm right there with you. Yeah. I mean, and there are tons of them in the United States because we had huge exports or imports from Germany to here. Um, so that was always something I was looking at. And I know people who... You know, they're always looking for particular instruments and bows. So I I try to keep a log, you know, when I would add them to my phone, I would say always looking for Los Angeles made violins or something like that, you know. Well, one more question for you. Uh, Apparently I'm supposed to call you peaches. Oh, gosh. 
I saw that on the outline. Who? So <laughs> that was Jennifer Halnar. <laughs> yep. She said, oh, you know, Brandon, you should call them peaches. And I'm like, I can't do that. <laughs> it's a uh, it is a nickname. I have many nicknames, many, many. Uh, a lot oh. of friends in Nashville called me Meemaw <laughs> because I love to cook with iron skillets. And um, yeah, I just I guess am an old grandma deep down also. Meemaw. I love it. Meemaw. And then uh, Meemaw peaches. The peaches thing came up from a friend of mine who, uh, one of my best friends who we had a Western swing group in Nashville called the Music City Doughboys. And he called me peaches one night on stage and it just stuck. <laughs> and so then when his, he had his first son, he's like, Uncle Peaches, come visit. <laughs> so then the violin shop, Tyler Andall, Jennifer, uh, Brian Christensen, they all started calling me peaches. So oh now, I guess, officially to the world on Peaches. I'm just going to blame Jennifer. She's a troublemaker. Thanks, Jennifer. Well, we have so appreciated having you on. And we have some Omo news. Omo oh gosh. Omo oh my. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be hearing more from Brandon in the upcoming episodes while... Chris takes his leave of absence. This fellow's going to keep in around. So we're, we're looking forward to having you. Yeah, I'm super excited. Thank you for asking me to do this. I can't be more excited about working with you guys and hopefully, you know, Chris at some point, but you are all great. And I really, I think Omo's amazing. I mean, Rosie and I, you talked about, we talked about this when we entered or did a, um, a session for the VSA, but you know, these podcasts keep us company at our benches or when we're traveling yeah. or so I think this is really fun. I feel like I know you guys way better than I did before Omo. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and on that note, we're going to give you a trial run at being a co-host. So you get to ask me and Jerry one question each. Oh, gosh. I was thinking about this Ruh-roh. and <laughs> I don't have I don't have the comedic intellect that Jacoby does because he's amazing, you know, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to fill that. Well, that comes from the bag of shrooms that he has before he records. (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah, well, that's great. Um, So I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you both maybe the same question, if that's all right. Um, And I'm going to call it Luthier time machine. And I'm going to ask, if there was, because I asked Claire Given this, Claire Givens this one time, and I thought it was really fun. Um, but the, if you could go back in time and visit any one workshop, or I'll just say a town, like a center of violin making or school or whatever, it just has to be violin trade related. Where and when would that be? Ooh. I <laughs> would... I, I got to spend one day in Cremona and had to cram all of it in the randomly meeting two English fellows who were luthiers having an argument over breakfast about a repair and, and spending most of the day with them and uh, going to see the oh, uh, Cremona tools and visiting the, um, I'm forgetting the name of the the concert hall. Um, 
the Cremona Concert Hall and 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 getting to watch someone, an excellent performer, play a really wonderful instrument and thinking, oh my goodness, that's amazing. And then they set that violin down and they pick up the second one. And then I realized the second one is the Strad because it is outperforming in every single way. Uh, I wish that I could spend a week there. I wish that I could talk to the luthiers there. I wish I could have had a better chance to really, really know the history there. Uh, we just had minutes to uh, go visit what is what is speculated to be Stradivari's home and and walk around in the courtyard. Um, I, I would spend months and months there if I could. That's great. Cremona is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's lovely. It has a magic to it. Mm-hmm. So where would I go in time and place? Uh, I'd have to say London, um, right at the beginning of the 20th century, right before World War One, because I think that's where so much of, mm-hmm. you know, the people that invented being violin dealers, modern violin dealers, that's, that's kind of where they're from, you know, the hills and... You know, you've got all the, the, the business with the Voller brothers happening. You've got all of this trade happening that is so integral to, in a lot of the ways, how we function today. It was kind of set up then and there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, if I could get in my time machine, it, it's not as romantic as going back to, to Cremona or to Brescia. Um, but I think going and seeing how the sausage was made then and there would be really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, at a pivotal time too, because if you dropped yourself, just say circa 1900 in London, you would have a good opportunity to see many of the, oh, yeah. you know, Criminy's masters works Yeah, because they all went through there. Yeah. Yeah. Or you get to see ones being created from various parts. <laughs> <laughs> you would, yeah, you would discover the, the real secret behind the Messiah, <laughs> if there is one, <laughs> there's that book that you can open up. But no, I, I think that's fascinating for me. My answer. Well, back to London, Claire and I were talking on this topic because we just said, how cool would it be to just drop yourself right into the epicenter of violin trading, which would have been W.E. Hill and Sons yep. during about 1900? Yep. Like, what would it smell like? What would the walls look like? You know, would the counters be dusty or would you be shunned away because you, you know, you maybe don't have all the money in the world. It would just be really fascinating to see it and Mm -hmm. the beehive that it was too, Mm -hmm. you know. Absolutely. Well, there's my question for y'all. Yeah, you did good. (laughs) Well, yeah, we're going to have you around again. And uh, next month is going to be me and Jerry talking about glue. Oh yeah. <laughs> Can't Ooh, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh and uh and more and more and more and more lovely fun stuff to come. All you guys out there, I hope you're doing well. Uh I know the pandemic never ends and uh <laughs> I I hope you guys are all taking care of your mental health. Yes. This should be all of our priorities. Yeah. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> Bye everyone. Nice to meet you all. Thank you, Oma Sapiens. Goodbye. Oma was an all-luthier podcast produced by Rosie DeLoach, Chris Jacoby, and Jerry Lynn. 
The show is edited by Jason Peoples, music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash omopod, where you can get your very own Omo swag. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us at mail at omopod.com or call the Omo phone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening.